Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In a moment here, we're going to go to uh, truly one of the recent cultural successes of the nation. That is the PBS series Country Music uh, with Ken Burns. And of course, this comes off his magisterial effort on Vietnam a number of years ago. Of course, we know of baseball and the Civil War uh, uh, long before. I mean, he really he has invented and, and sustained a genre, Paul. Has it, it really is. He's really taken documentary filmmaking to another level and it you know, really all started for me for that Civil War series that came out in 1990. Boy, I just can't remember. It's that long ago, but it really helped. I think a whole generation uh, kind of just rekindle the interest with the Civil War. And then, of course, he continued it with baseball, which is was, you know, equally as epic uh, looking at, you know, a big right. part of Americana. The courage of country music is Mr. Burns has had the courage to go back to the foundation before the Ryman Auditorium, before uh, uh, the, what what they did on radio back when radio really mattered to this nation, and then he moves on forward and ends. And the critics would say ends way too early because he doesn't move on to what country music has become. He leaves it with Garth Brooks, the Bluebird Cafe, and the revolution that was at the time. Ken Burns, welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance. Wonderful to speak to you again. Thank you, Tom, for having me, Paul. Great to be with you. Congratulations again on this. When you developed this series, you had to begin somewhere. Our colleague in crime, David Gurra's father, Philip Gurra, is the expert on the Martin guitar. How far back in the Martin guitar did you go to begin country music? Well, you know, that was the hard point. Ending it, we knew because we're in the history business, we're not going to go up to the present. But as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We knew that whatever's going on now, there would be a rhyme in every one of our eight episodes. And indeed there is, and I'm happy to discuss that. Much harder was where to start, and we begin in the yeah. 20s when both um, the relatively you know, mature medium of phonograph records, uh, several decades old, uh, is, is uh, beginning to record this old-time hill country music, and this new, new technology of radio is beginning to disseminate it. At that point, once we've got a few people recorded, we go back and collect many centuries of mm. folk tunes from the British Isles and uh, the banjo from Africa and all the intertwined influences in America, including the Martin guitar and talk mm. about George Frederick Martin and, and what he did and what his yeah. sons and grandsons did to sort of improve it and make it a kind of popular household item that rivaled, not only rivaled, but exceeded uh, the piano in the yeah. parlor. Someone said to me that Bing Crosby changed things because he was the first person that sang to you. What did Hank Williams Sr. do? Uh, he, he spoke to your heart. I think it's absolutely true about Bing Crosby. I'm not sure he's the first person. I'd suggest maybe right. Louis Armstrong in the way he bent notes and, sure. and and was able to speak. But but I think within the community of country music, which is, of course, connected to jazz and blues and all the other, Hank Williams is speaking to universal human emotions of love and loss. Let's take love for a second. Um, I got a hot rod Ford and a $2 bill, and I know a place right over the hill. The joy, almost in haiku-like phrase, phrases um, of, of, of new love, the possibility of new love. And then he also says, 
Um, the silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky. And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. There's no one on the planet that does not know what Hank Williams is saying. And that, you know, as Rodney Crowell, the singer and songwriter who in our film says, when a songwriter gets it right for themselves, it's right for everybody else. And Hank so directly channeled these universal human emotions uh, that the rest of us are still in its thrall. And I think you guys in business should know that the rising tide of this broadcast, a kind of old-fashioned thing where we all gather around our TV sets together rather than at our own pace. People are still doing that. It's available for free for streaming and the DVDs are out and blah, blah, blah. But there's a huge community of feeling. It has raised up. If you look at the Amazon or the Billboard charts of country uh, of music, the number one is the new release of Abbey Road. The remaining nine are all connected to us. That is to say, our soundtrack or some of the people we feature right. in the films, their backlist coming up. And it goes, you know, it's dozens of stuff. Even Bob Dylan is having a resurgence because he makes an appearance yeah. in about five or six of our episodes. Uh, let me bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney. Paul? So, Ken, I was just wondering, you mentioned Hank Williams. Who are some of the other artists that you think in your work, in your documentary, that really kind of helped the evolution of country music as, as yes. we know it? Well, so so I would I would uh, make a, a Mount Rushmore, if you will, and I'd make room for a few more heads than the four that are on our political Mount Rushmore, which, of course, we're only addressing the first 125 years of our existence. Um, certainly Jimmy Rogers, who's the first great superstar from yeah. Mississippi, steeped in the blues, to learn from the black, all-black train crews that were laying track in, in uh, Mississippi. Um, the Carter family, which seems the opposite. Jimmy Rogers is most definitely the Saturday night tradition in America, and the Carter family is the uh, Sunday morning tradition. But mm-hmm. within them are many influences, including African-American songs. And Mother Maybelle Carter, the original American guitarist, right. the lead guitarist, she invented the Carter scratch, being able to do the melody with your thumb and keep rhythm yeah. with the remaining fingers, is still today yeah. the dominant way of playing guitar and so yeah. I put them on it and I'd add Johnny Cash and Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton and Merle Haggard to well, the to the Mount Rushmore of people who who right. spoke directly. Ken, let me get this in because I want to drive forward to the more modern country music and country music of course folks you can see it on PBS. To me the swing point is an incredibly gifted person named Ricky Skaggs. That's not a household name, but you brilliantly have Don't Get Above Your Raising in there. Explain the cultural tip point of the people like Ricky Skaggs that threw country music into a more modern era. Well, it's very interesting. They really represent these, you know, contradictory impulses in in country music because country music has always been seeking to cross over and have more lucrative pop success and that has always annoyed the purists and what Ricky Skaggs and what Marty Stewart and what uh, George Strait and Randy Travis and Reba McIntyre and others did is they took the traditional form of country music and unashamedly held on to it but brought it up to the modern era. Um, you know, uh, Ricky Skaggs had been a disciple since six years old of Bill Monroe. I mean, we got footage of him performing at seven years old. It's unbelievable. A mandolin prodigy. But he's plugging it in yeah. 
and he's playing it in a way that he takes old tunes that had never charted, like Don't Get Above Your Raisin, right. old southern phrase, Don't Get Too Big for Your Britches, and he turns it into well, this rollicking thing with a honky-tonk yeah. beat, and it, it brings us into the modern Ken, age. let's do this. We want to come back and really jump forward here from Ricky Skaggs. This is in celebration of country music. It's out on PBS, and once again, with the emotion of his previous Vietnam baseball and Civil War, Ken Burns is with us. Paul Sweeney and I with Ken Burns. You know him, of course, from the Civil War, many other efforts for PBS. Vietnam was deeply emotional, and now, again, country music. Ken, please compare and contrast the response of country music to all of your other projects. Uh, How does it fit into the Ken Burns work? Well, you know, the big series that you mentioned, Civil War, Baseball, Jazz, and the war about World War II, National Parks, the Roosevelt's, and Vietnam, have all been hugely uh, responded to and have, have, have been very gratifying in, in the response and the ratings and stuff like that. And the numbers aren't in completely for country music and won't be because there's so many streams yeah. um, that we're getting. And that's going to be a, a different kind of metric and measurement. But I, I, I haven't had a film since the Civil War that's had this kind of emotional impact. You know, people uh, finding me, tracking me down, writing me, stopping me on the streets, um, you know, beginning to tear up because that song meant something for them. They were, that song got them through that divorce. This was something that, that meant something when their uh, grandparents uh, passed away. Mm-hmm. Whatever it might be, there's a... You know, our underwriter, our corporate underwriter, uh, for the last 13 years, they've just signed up for the next 10, Bank of America, um, had a wonderful tagline in their underwriting thing where they said, nothing connects the country like country. And so I think as we began our conversation earlier, this idea of doing something collectively has really been lost. We're all individual free agents, and we right. feel that lonesomeness that Hank Williams is talking about. I, the reason I've spent my entire professional life in public broadcasting is I like, you know, the PBS thing, the public, right, the right. broadcasting is obvious, and the S isn't system, it's service. And so I, I'd almost say it's PBS. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? That yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, we, we, we rarely have that in our fragmented right. lives. Ken Burns, John Karamanica in the New York Times, I thought it was a great treatment. And there's the photo by Amy Curlin of the Bluebird Cafe, which was about the song. And the song permeates country music uh, throughout all of the decades it was. One day at the Bluebird Cafe, Garth Brooks gets up and changes country music. Everybody that's involved agrees that he simple, single-handedly did an Amy Curlin audition, got up there, this kid from Oklahoma, and away country music went to a new, a new a tact, new a new generation. Yeah. So the great irony of it, and I always think that when this, the songs themselves are stories, that's the great popularity of country music. It's easy to understand. These are stories. But when you tell the story behind that song, you're sort of exponentially engaged. So, in fact, Garth is playing after a week of being turned down by every record label on Music Row. (laughs) And he goes in there, and he's singing and playing, and people are giving him standing ovations for the chorus, Not not at the end of the song, but for the chorus. And Amy Curlin as she tells us on camera, had never seen that before. Yeah. And so there's a record executive who had been one of the ones that had passed on him, and he said, you know what? 
let me give him a chance. <laughs> and of course, uh, the rest is history. All of a sudden, you're not talking about a great success yeah. of 100,000 or 500 or that rare um, platinum uh, in country music, but you're talking about 20 or 25 right. million and- in sales. And Garth, uh, you know, obliterates every past record that's ever happened. And, and he still retains that humility uh, to go to a fanfare, not even an invited, and sign, not for an hour, not for two hours, but for 20 hours until everybody was satisfied. And that's not getting above and, the And rate. Paul, what's great about this and what Ken Burns captures is he actually talks to Alan Reynolds, who was Jim Rooney, right. made this happen. And they've got a direct leg back through Don Williams to the earlier country music. So Ken, you, you know, know when, yeah. when I when I think about country music, it's you know you think about you know the Southeast United States, but it's really now a national, if not global, it, phenomenon. Well, what it, what really happened it, there? Well, it it was been like that from the beginning, and I think it's just that that commerce and convenience categorizes country music in its, into its own silo and therefore imprisons it as if it's an island nation. It's connected to all other music, and when you've got a 50,000-watt signal in the 1920s beaming out country music. Hank Snow is hearing it in the 30s in Nova Scotia, in the Maritime Provinces. People on the other side of the Sierra Nevada are are hearing it and, and being um, drawn to it. So New York City, one of its most popular radio stations, is a country station. I think what we do is, in our desire to categorize, we limit its scope and its reach. And I think from the very beginning, I mean, when you say World War II, you think of Glenn Miller, and you think of uh, Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, well, in fact, probably a majority of the folks listening to music were country music fans. And the same was true in Vietnam, where we think it's got a purely rock and roll soundtrack. It doesn't. And we prove it here, as we did in, in a Vietnam series. So I think it's always been there. And because it's about three chords and the truth, Harlan Howard said that, a songwriter, he's acknowledging this isn't complicated like classical music. But you know what? You can hear the lyrics, and that truth part cannot be denied. It is speaking about, as I said, universal human experiences. Ken, how did Nashville become the center of country music? By accident. The National Life and Accident Insurance Company decided that it might be helpful to sell policies if they started a a radio station, WSM, We Shield Millions. They ended up with one of those 50,000-watt things, and they put Mm -hmm. on, as Charlotte had and Dallas had and Chicago had, a barn dance. That barn dance quickly got renamed just by accident one day, uh, the Grand Ole Opry. It's the longest-running radio show in the history of the United States. And because of Nashville's central location, the really poorly, the, 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 the comparatively poorly paid musicians who played there on Saturday nights could go to better-paying gigs yeah. for the week as long as they were back well. the next Saturday night for the next uh, Grand Ole yeah. Opry. And so Nashville just grows, songwriters move there, and then, of course, the stars live there because they're performing on the Opry stage and heading out on the road right. for the week. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing. And this place called the Athens of the South, by its old uh, inhabitants, has to sort of make way for Music City USA. Ken Burns, congratulations on another tour de force. Mr. Burns, that's country music. It is at PBS, and by all accounts, it is spectacular. Uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.